As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to a Sunday night, Monday morning edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me to break down the United States' emphatic victory over Trinidad and Tobago is a man who likes his teams to win by a touchdown, even when they're not playing football, or American football, I should say. It's Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. It was a touchdown victory. They they scored the touchdown and got the extra point, so the, the terminology isn't quite... It doesn't quite equate from <laughs> football suppose. to football, which is not your fault. Like, that's just the general dialect that we choose to use for a 7 nothing victory but at this point I've been talking too long and I don't know where I'm going I mean I think that that's fair because when you're trying to balance out the number of players that participated in this game combined with the number of goals and individual moments I think it's easy to lose track of things <laughs> we're going to try not to do that uh, when we talk about the United States 7-0 win over Trinidad on Sunday night in the January end of January beginning of February friendly camp sort of situation a very very good win for the US but we should probably put it in context so we are going to talk about some of the goals some of the players some of the tactics we saw because there were definitely some things they've been working on And I think it was never more clear that one team had been training and had a bit of consistency and squad harmony and the other one did not. Uh, So let's talk for a moment, Joe, though, about that Trinidad team and some of the conditions they were under, some of the things that they had to kind of figure out and factor in heading into this game. Yeah, let's do it. There are a number of different different ways this could go just because there were so many facts that John Strong and and this was, you know, Mm -hmm. written before the game as well. There were so many different facts about the the insanity that this Trinidad and Tobago team kind of had to go through to even play this game. They weren't originally the team that the U.S. was hoping to play at the end of the January camp. That was Let's supposed pause. to be Serbia, right? Yeah, let's pause there for a moment because I like it's it, my brain does this weird thing where there's just like a disconnect in the same way that I'll see a time like it's like, oh, the game kicks off at three and my brain's just like, yeah, it kicks off at four. Like, that's what I've decided <laughs> in this case. I kept like even though I was reading Trinidad and Tobago and like heard you and Adam talk about it. I was still like, that's weird that they're talking about Trinidad and Tobago and not Serbia. Uh, and then it kind of clicked after that one once I once I kind of realized what was happening. But I was still operating out of the assumption for some reason that it was going to be Serbia. So that was a fun surprise when I he- heard you and Adam talking about it. But yeah, they 
not able to participate. So then Trinidad and Tobago step in. Sounds like maybe the Federation did not want that to be the case. Maybe some of the players as well. But Terry Fennick, their head coach, I guess, desperate to get his first game in charge since taking over in, what, December of 2019. Uh, this would be his, his first game, and it was a, an interesting one. But let's talk about some of the other things he had to deal with, Joe. It was a heavy, the roster-wise, it was a heavy USL, mm-hmm. Canadian Premier League, and Trinidad and Tobago Domestic League, Trinidadian Domestic League. It, you know, all the players that featured in the starting 11, at least for Trinidad and Tobago, were from uh, were from those different lower-level leagues, and yeah. they were a split squad. They weren't all traveling together to Orlando for this game. Uh, we heard on the broadcast that the Trinidadian group coming from that country flew in on Friday and met up with the domestic United States and maybe Canadian-based group of players. And and those players playing here in the United States and in Canada had never met their head coach, had, had never had an opportunity to get together and enter a camp with him and, and to do any of those different things. And so that's just another added element that that hopefully makes it clear just how difficult this game was for Trinidad and Tobago and not just because of the 7 nothing loss that they suffered. Yeah, I mean, and then you look at the squad itself, there's uh, six unattached players, there are seven from that Trinidadian league, uh, as you noted, worth noting that John Strong pointed out that game, that league has not resumed since they uh, took their break for COVID, uh, this is, they suspended play, they haven't yet resumed, uh, there are nine red names, if you look on their Wikipedia roster, two of them, two players play for Coleraine in the Northern Ireland League, they, that's a semi-pro team, they're currently fourth, so that's good, <laughs> um, and yeah, so I think you, you sort of look at a lot lot of that and it puts this in context of this is not going to be the fittest team they're not going to be the most harmonious team they're probably not going to be on the same page entirely I think they got a couple sessions in and I think they worked very very hard but this was always going to be an uphill battle to start and then even more so once you kind of talk about all the things that we've been talking about and I think for them to come out and and try to play it makes sense and I think it reminds me to some extent this is not an analogy that American fans are going to love but I think the way Terry Fennick probably approached this and we'll talk about this game is similar to when the U.S. lost to Mexico pretty emphatically 3-0 and Burhalter afterward kept talking about like this is a learning experience we learned some things we learned that we like struggled a bit out of the back and we want to and everybody was sort of myself included very frustrated by that explanation that it was sort of like how are you not addressing the fact that you just lost 3-0 to our arch rival and I think his point the entire time was we have to have these losses to figure out who we are and what we want to do and sort of learn from them. And I'm going to guess that's what Fennec wanted from this one. So at the very least, they got a game in. But we say all this to say, not the most experienced team, not the most sort of unified team when it comes to their approach or their familiarity with each other. And I think that was pretty on display with some of the play we saw. Not to say that they were like ridiculously off the pace, but there were definitely a few times when I was like, this looks like a, like an MLS team playing a USL League One team or a USL championship team. And then I remembered like, oh, it, it kind of is. So that does feel sort of accurate. I mean, I want to go back to that Mexico, US Mexico comparison you made just a second ago. Cause I think that's a great point. The talent on this Trinidad and Tobago roster wasn't there. And we've, I think we've laid that foundation at this point. But the way they came out in this game was as if they had the talent to compete. It was as if they were ready to come into this game and play on the road and really step high and take it to the U.S. Trinidad came out in a a high-pressing 4-3-3. Mm-hmm. That's that's a little bit crazy, but in a fun kind of way. Yeah. They didn't do it. They didn't do it very well, which again, understandable. No. But they were taking it. They were trying to take it to the U.S. and step their line high and create turnovers in their attacking half and do all of those kinds of things. 
and it, it wasn't successful, but I think that's a perfect comparison. It clearly is how how they want to be playing against even teams that have more talent than they do. And they tried it. It didn't work, but those are reps. Those are rare reps that they haven't been getting. And now they've had at least one chance to run it out, see what works, see what didn't work, or or what worked to their satisfaction even in a major defeat, and then continue to evolve as a group from there. I think it was an impressive if slightly naive approach, but I mean, you can argue about how much stock you want to put into a friendly, even from a, a coaching and evaluation standpoint within that group of, of Trinidad and Tobago kind of players. Right. Which is, which is literally like why we're doing this, this version of an introduction, because I think neither one of us, like, I will say this. I am very excited about the result we just saw. Obviously, the scoreline is the scoreline. The team is the team. But some of the play, some of the patterns, some of the combinations, some of the individual moments I thought were excellent. And I think we both just wanted to kind of have this clarifying conversation up front so we don't lose ourselves too much. Because I think there is a world in which... There's a national team not too long ago, not under any one particular manager necessarily, but there's a national team that I think struggles with this Trinidad team and just the physicality. They get kind of pulled into a physical affair back and forth, long ball, slowing it down, like, like just like irregular combinations, irregular passing moments. And I think the United States, like maybe they get a three, no win, but it takes a little bit like longer than we would have expected. It takes till the 27th or 35th minute to score that opener. And, and I do, think with everything we've said that there is a U.S. team that struggles and I think it really made me happy that this team very much did the opposite of that scoring inside what two minutes and then never really taking the foot off the gas until they knew they really comfortably could but I just think how not troubled they were even when Trinidad did sort of go at them and try to put them under pressure and try to play a little bit physical the U.S. really did just play their way out of it. Even two years ago when Berhalter took over and had his first January Mm -hmm. camp back in 2019 They played Panama and they played Costa Rica in those two games at the end of their January camp in 2019. They didn't blow either one of those teams out. And both of those teams, Panama and Costa Rica, even with with not complete rosters back a couple years ago, were better than this Trinidad and Tobago team. But I think there's there's a reality, like you said, Taylor, where where two years ago, if Berhalter's national team played this Trinidad and Tobago team, I don't think it's 7-0. I think, like you said, it's 3-0. And so... I'm even willing to make the comparison you made within the Berhalter era and not just looking to the past and looking to to previous versions of the national team. I think we've seen Berhalter develop a style tactically in the last two years, and it hasn't always been pretty. It hasn't always been fun to watch and hasn't always been been successful for the national team. But a style is in place, and we saw different tactical elements of that style tonight against Trinidad and Tobago. Yeah, and and that is like... A starting point for me of feeling confident heading into games is that looking at the names listed, I have a decent amount of confidence that I can figure out what that 11 is going to look like, where they're going to be on the field and what they're going to be asked to do. And I think that is a level of consistency that we have not always had with the U.S. program. And that already is just a nice thing to know that everybody knows what's being asked of them. And you can see even uh, Matt Doyle uh, tweeted this and I thought it was really good. I'm jumping ahead a little bit to Chris Gloucester, who uh, comes in as a substitute in this game. But even when he comes in, he's looking to make the same sort of bending in behind passes that Sam Vines made throughout this game that Aaron Herrera made on the opposite side and even seeing the the substitute players come in and know what they're being asked to do and and trying to execute it Gloucester's doesn't come off in the you mean clip, Bello, uh, by the way, Doyle's Taylor. tweet Bello excuse me sorry You're good. I, did I say Gloucester yeah keep going you, sorry. Are, you were nailing it <laughs> 
Thank you, my friend. I did mean Bello, George Bello, to be uh, the, to give him his first and last. But even just that, like I don't even know their names, but I guess Greg Berhalter does, and he has them all <laughs> playing the the same way. So I think like even that level of connectivity from one camp to the next, and that even if it's different players or some of the same players, it seems as though the the drills, the tactics, the approach are all starting to really get bedded in there, and it seems like the the like the core squad uh, in this group knew what was being asked of them and knew how to execute. So do you want to get into some more big picture bird's eye view kind of tactical things that we saw in this game? Are you ready to get into yes. the, the tactical nitty gritty? I think I am. Uh, let's let's start with the way they approached this game. It was the kind of four three three of sorts that we we were expecting, or at least I was expecting. There were some nuances in there, especially with the sort of positioning that I was less expecting. Uh, so, for example, one thing I saw at least in the first twenty minutes or so. When the U.S. was transitioning into defense, and even when they had, had kind of pushed up and were now in a position where they were defending when uh, Trinidad and Tobago were trying to build out of the back, I saw that back four together, like a straight line of back four, but very compact, very tight together. And I saw the same thing with that midfield three defensively. And for at least the first 20 minutes, it seemed as though the U.S. were set up to not let Trinidad have any time or space through the middle, not let anything build through the middle, and were content to sort of let them have the flanks and then press them there. And it was almost that lateral pressing system that we talk about when we talk about Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool or before that Dortmund, that you kind of crowd the middle, force them wide, and then you collapse and cause them lots of problems. And I think it worked really effectively. So that was one thing I saw. Joe, did you see that or did you see other defensive approaches? No, I think that's a really good observation, zeroing in specifically on that midfield three. When I think right now about how Berhalter has evolved as a coach, the biggest evolution I think about is how he uses his midfield line in defense. At the beginning of his tenure, it was a 4-4-2 mid block, right? It was that line of four midfielders in front of the back four, and they sat right around the midfield line or a little below that and moved back and forth and tried to win the ball. Fast forward to last January camp in a game that took place, I believe, on February 1st against Costa Rica in 2020. That changed, and we saw the U.S. play a straight-up 4-3-3 with three midfielders playing kind of tight together, one six and two eights in front of that six And they were waiting, waiting for the ball to come out wide. And then they would run and trap and press against the sideline with the help of those wingers. We're still seeing that. One year removed from the the 2020 January camp, we're seeing that same defensive alignment in midfield. And I'm totally with you. We saw that again with Jackson Ewell. We saw it with Sebastian Legette and Kellen Acosta as those starting three midfielders in this defensive setup. So then if we've seen aspects of this before, do you feel like this approach from an attacking standpoint was more like we're going to have a couple different identities and this was the identity when we're playing a team that we expect to be able to dominate on the ball, to to cause problems, to probably win, and so we should go after them? Because this seemed... Like with everything I, I said earlier about like the four and then the three, it still seemed very attacking. Herrera and Vines getting forward very, very often and really not dropping in once they did. That felt to me sort of like they had been given license to get forward and stay forward and cause problems. They definitely had license to move up, up and stay in the attacking half. I think I think we're going to see that against a lot of CONCACAF opponents. And it's possible that the approach defensively and offensively varies against a, a very high quality team. Although I think Berhalter would like to instill a, a pretty rigid identity. Although I, I don't think that's quite feasible. I think he understands that and will still be fluid at times. But against teams like Trinidad and Tobago, against teams like El Salvador or even, you know, Wales or all these teams that the U.S. can at least play with. 
we're going to see them be aggressive with their defensive positioning. We're going to see them be aggressive with their offensive positioning. And I think tonight was definitely a good example of that. And so let's, let's like, I want to focus in on the, let's go with the left side to start here, because another aspect that I really enjoyed with Sam Vines getting forward, uh, the distribution from Aaron Long, I think made Trinidad like a little bit hesitant to really try to man mark or, or stick with anybody too much. But I thought a lot of the rotations from the players also caused a bunch of problems because normally I think of like the 4-3-3 formation. I think just to kind of paint the basic picture, let's say Aaron Long has the ball off of a goal kick. Matt Turner plays it to Aaron Long. He turns. And if Sam Vines is in that sort of le- like left fullback, but like wide, but not really forward, he's there as the outlet. You can have an, uh, an attacking player, if you're Trinidad, kind of stand between them, stand near them, and now that pass isn't as enticing. Uh, you can have Sebastian Legette, who's that number 10 slash kind of number eight, the left-sided central midfielder. He can then drop in more centrally and be an option for Aaron Long. But he's still kind of moving into that space where that defender might already be. You can have Jonathan Lewis go very wide, and then maybe you play to Sam Vines and you go down the line to Jonathan Lewis. But if a defender has tracked him, it it almost always is going to be like a ball into feet, and then he lays it off to somebody, or he tries to run in behind and you're just going long. That's the kind of conventional way that I think of the United States trying to build out. In this game, and maybe in games past, but it really stood out to me in this game, that let's say Aaron Long gets that ball. I saw Sam Vines try immediately to get maybe 20 yards further up the field. But even if nothing was on, I did not see Sam Vines coming back to make a sort of like, okay, I'll make like the safer option and then we can kind of move around from there. What I saw was if it was that left side, Sebastian Legette dropping deeper or on the right side, it was Kellen Acosta dropping in. But those fullbacks staying high, I think it caused a lot of problems for the defenders trying to mark the space but mark the men that if you're tracking that fullback, you're going to go with them. You're going to drop 10, 20, 30 yards, whatever it is. And now Legette can move in and he's in space that's wide open and you've advanced the ball 20 yards and now he has no one around him and just those sorts of rotations those patterns where uh it was like clockwork it really was ball goes here this guy goes there that guy drops in this guy moves over and it wasn't like drawn up necessarily that way but you could just see what they had been working on and you could see that everybody knew what they needed to do in that moment the U.S. looked comfortable with the ball. They looked like they knew yeah. exactly how to move it. And that's what you want. That's what you need to see against a team like Trinidad and Tobago. You need to see comfort. You need to see control. And the U.S. had that. Even as Trinidad and Tobago switched up what they were doing defensively a little bit. I think, especially on rewatch, I zeroed in on what they were trying to do against the ball. What Trinidad and Tobago were trying to do defensively. They started, as I said before, in that 4-3-3 that stepped high up the field And they pressed through the midfield especially. And what I mean by that is the number nine in their 4-3-3 was not glued, but was certainly shadowing Jackson Ewell, the United States defensive midfielder. Then their Trinidad and Tobago's two higher central midfielders, so the the top two central midfielders in their midfield three, were marking Kellen Acosta and Sebastian Legette, or again, shadowing. It wasn't rigid man marking Mm -hmm. through that space. But they were shadowing those players. And so what that left Trinidad and Tobago with was one, uh, their, their number six at the back, able to sweep back and forth in front of their back line and deal especially with Jesus Ferreira and make sure he didn't, you know, move too deep in midfield unmarked or unchecked. So that's how they started. And the U.S. realized that they realized that playing through midfield was going to be difficult. And so I think that's why we saw them play wide a lot. And they played into the fullback. So they used the fullback's positioning to at least exploit and open up space in the wide areas. And then, Taylor, as the first half moved on, right around the 20th minute, I have it down as the 19th minute or right around there, 
Trinidad and Tobago switched up what they were doing. They started in that 4-3-3, and then they switched to a 4-2-3-1, and they had the the one in that 4-2-3-1, their striker, kind of moving around and trying to put some pressure on the United States center backs because they hadn't done that previously. Their number nine was responsible for the central defensive midfielder for the U.S. And then they had their other players, their other midfielders in that midfield two marking Acosta and Leggett. And that left, at this point, Jesus Ferreira unmarked. He didn't have that number six to deal with anymore because the shape had changed. So then at this point, Jesus Ferreira starts being the difference maker. And I I, I want to know if you saw this as well. But from what I noticed, yep. Ferreira started dropping way deeper. He started dropping way more often. And he hadn't really done that in the first 20 minutes because he had an opposing midfielder right there to watch him. And then the second that that, that midfielder turned his attention away and had a different responsibility, Jesus Ferreira started really making the game his own, which gave the U.S. a completely different dimension and gave their attack another another method of getting forward into the attacking half. And so my point of detailing uh, Trinidad and Tobago's defensive setup is to say that the U.S. was comfortable with with option one when they were playing, you know, Trinidad and Tobago's first defensive setup. But then they they were equally, if not even more comfortable rolling with the second defensive setup that Trinidad and Tobago rolled out and using Ferreira as their X factor in midfield, even as that number nine. And I think their comfort rolling with the punches and knowing how to beat different defensive approaches is is certainly notable. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. All right. Well, we're going to talk more about Jesus Ferrer. We're going to talk more about some goals and some individual moments. But first, let's talk about today's sponsor. This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Wealthfront. No one is great at something the first time they try it. And if you're unfamiliar with investing, getting started can be intimidating. Wealthfront does the work for you so you can invest like an expert from the beginning. Whenever we we have Wealthfront conversations, Taylor, I'm drawn back to our many conversations about bread. And I am working on my bread making, <laughs> bread baking. Wow. See, I can't even say baking. Mm-hmm. I'm not really qualified to be baking, apparently. But Wealthfront makes investing significantly easier than, than baking bread is for me. And so they really help you out with this investing process. Wealthfront creates automated investment portfolios of diversified, low-cost index funds personalized just for you. To open your account, all you need is three minutes and $500 to invest. There are no manual trades. No watching the stock market and no more managing the details. Wealthfront's technology does it for you based on inputs you control. I'm going to assume also no shorting of stock and uh, nothing involving GameStop, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Wealthfront reduces unnecessary risk and their portfolios are made to weather long-term market conditions. Yeah, that backs up what I said. They can even help you lower your taxes. Right now, if you visit Wealthfront.com slash TSS to get your first $5,000 managed for free for life, Joseph Lowry, for life. For life sounds pretty darn good. That's W E A. L-T-H-F-R-O-N-T dot com slash T-S-S, wealthfront.com slash T-S-S to start growing your savings. 
So Taylor, everybody out there, go to Wealthfront.com slash TSS and get started today. Here we are. Thank you to Wealthfront for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you to 1010 for sponsoring today's episode. You may have read about this in the New York Times, in Style Magazine, or Forbes, or on the Total Soccer Show, and we're excited to tell you more about it. 1010 is an exclusive collection of 10 one-of-a-kind engagement rings designed by 10 of the most distinctive designers working today. Using only diamonds responsibly sourced from Botswana, 10 design masters have each produced a uniquely beautiful commitment ring. They're available now exclusively at BlueNile.com. And when they're gone, Taylor, they are gone. They are gone. We all know that the diamond engagement ring is iconic. It's a timeless expression of the deepest commitment between two people. And with 1010, it's been beautifully re-envisioned in the hands of 10 modern designers working exclusively with sustainably sourced diamonds. So if you're ready to mark a special commitment or looking for a unique and meaningful way to celebrate Valentine's Day, you're definitely going to want to check this out. Again, this exciting limited edition collection of diamond engagement rings is now available exclusively at BlueNile.com. Thank you very much to 1010 for sponsoring this episode. Joe, let's get back to the U.S. performance overall. Any other broad points or should we continue on with the Jesus Ferreira conversation since that's where we left off? Let's continue on with that Jesus Ferreira conversation. Taylor, I want to get your read on him in this game because I tweeted it out. I thought, yes, understanding the level is what it was. I think, as you said before, Mm -hmm. the level is not high that they're playing against. And so that's a big caveat here. But I thought Jesus Ferreira was very, very good, not just because he scored goals, not just because he got assists, although those things are pretty awesome, but because of how he dropped into midfield and allowed the U.S. to build up and move into the attack. He was, I think, my second most impressive player. Uh, And and I really, really, really liked everything I saw from Jesus Ferreira, which shows you how much I liked the performance of another individual who we'll talk about later. But I think, yeah, to start with his movement, yes, goals, assists, all wonderful, all great. But the movement, I think, was the thing that I kept sort of going back to because, again, opposition being what it is, him, like, not just sort of doing the same things, making the same runs. I, to go back to that, like two years ago, I don't know if the runs are nuanced. I don't know if he's popping up where he does. There were moments in this game when he reminded me of Papu Gomez when he was still with Atalanta, that sometimes he's your number 10. Sometimes he's like up along the striker. Sometimes yeah. he's back between the center backs. And even, I believe, for the fourth goal, when they're building out, he has like a double role in this one because he has the the flicked on header for Paul Areola to then settle and shoot. But before that, when the U.S. is building out, he is one of four outfield players in the United States' half when this play starts. It's the two center backs, it's Jackson Ewell, and it's Jesus Ferreira, our, our number nine, wearing number nine. Uh, and everybody else has pushed forward. But that is how far back he has come. And an important point here would be that Trimmingham, the center back, has chosen to man mark him and stick with him. So when Ferreira gets the ball into his feet from Miles Robinson... Uh, he takes a touch, Trimmingham closes, and he pulls that center back even further out, and then he lays it off for Miles Robinson to, uh, to ping long, and away we go. But when, uh, Ferreira is then, like, there for the loose header, it's a very bad he- headed clearance by Pena, and that's when he's able to flick it onto Ariola. He has position on Trimmingham because Trimmingham never gets goal side. Ferreira is sort of determined to make that run into space and then hold that space. And just all of that movement, it's it's an assist, yes, and that's great. And it's a really lovely header into the path of Paul Areola. But it's the movement and popping up in different areas that I think sort of started the confusion for Trinidad that they weren't able to fully recover from, at least for this goal. And Jesus Ferreira, I think, put on a clinic of of why a false nine is a valuable tactic, even mm-hmm. even kind of 10 years after it really burst on the scene with Cesc Fabregas and with Spain, and it had been around before then. But that's the idea, right? 
he you you brought it out there really well, Taylor. When Jesus Ferreira dropped, sometimes an opposing center back came right with him because hmm. they needed to deal with yep. Ferreira between the lines. And when that happens, you create space or you create space behind the line or for a teammate somewhere else. That's great. But Trinidad and Tobago sometimes didn't want to give up that space. Sometimes they weren't willing to compromise and run with Ferreira as he dropped deeper. And so instead, they would let him roam free. And that's not an ideal situation for Trinidad and Tobago either. Then you have Jesus Ferreira, one of the most creative players on the field in general, right in between your defensive line and your midfield line, ready to receive the ball and turn and play forward. And those are those are decisions that if you're Trinidad and Tobago, you don't want to be making, which means if you're the United States, those are the exact kind of decisions that you want to be forcing your opponents into yeah. making. And Jesus Ferreira executed that role, I think, really well for the U.S. in this one. Yeah, and so then when he's executing it well, and he does have a center back follow him, or uh, Fortune, the the more holding midfielder, it opens that space up for those interior runs from Paul Ariola and Jonathan Lewis, and that happened on on regular occasions. That that space is vacated, it opens up a little bit, and almost Trinidad sort of look around and they think like, oh, their goal score is gone. We're fine. Oh no, they created space, and now we're in trouble. <laughs> and it was a lot of sort of like, oh, Ferrer is not near the ball or not near the goal, but that doesn't mean that the United States isn't about to get a shooting opportunity, and it doesn't mean even that Jesus Ferreira just despite being 40 yards further downfield, isn't going to then get the assist for a goal. So I thought his movement was just like from from start until he eventually subs out. I just thought it was consistently very good and very smart, but also, if you'll forgive me, like very varied. That sometimes it was dropping all the way back. Sometimes it was holding it a little bit or trying to run in behind. Sometimes it was overloading out wide. Sometimes it was overloading through the middle. But I just thought the... The kind of like multifaceted approach he brought in made me very, very happy. And one last thing for me on Jesus Ferreira before well, we I, got, move I on. got another thing too, so don't worry oh, about perfect. it. Oh, <laughs> perfect. Okay, that's great. Yeah. I think I think it was important to note in this game that before the game, we heard Berhalter talking about, or we heard on the broadcast at least, that Berhalter had said that he wanted to see Jesus Ferreira arrive in the box. He wanted to see Ferreira make those runs into the attacking half and in all the way into the box to be a goal-scoring option, to be an option in the box to shoot and create chances or get on the end of chances. And Jesus Ferreira did that. You're talking about his varied movement, Taylor. He dropped into midfield sometimes, yes, but he also extended his runs and moved into the attacking half and attacked the box over and over again. And I think his willingness and hard running was very important in this game for the United States. Yeah, let's talk about the second goal for a moment, because this is the one he does score. Uh, he gets his goal here. Uh, but the thing that I really, really liked when I went back and watched, this is the one where the ball goes out wide to Legette. He holds it up and waits for Sam Vines to make that overlapping run that he knows he's going to make, plays it into Vines. There's a question as to whether or not he's a touch offside, but no VAR, that's not coming back. Vines then centers it, and Jesus, is for, Jesus Ferreira is there for like a nice instep. It's a good goal, and it goes sort of back the way it came, which can all, all, always throw off goalkeepers a little bit because they might think you're going far post. But the thing that I really, really liked about this with that description done is the way Ferreira identifies what's happening because he makes a really smart run in this moment that when the ball goes wide to Legette, Ferreira has, uh, because it's like been crossed in and partially cleared, he is in a slightly offside position. He, he does a good job to get back onside near the top of the box. And once this ball goes wide to Sebastian Legette, I think he recognizes Sam Bynes is going to make this overlapping run. The ball is going to go to him. So I can now drift into an 
an offside position because the ball's not coming from Leggett to me. He's waiting for that overlap. So I can now cheat, get like three yards further forward, and now the defenders have to make a decision. And what they end up doing is sort of letting him stay there, but then they over overreact and try really, really hard to get goal side of him, lose track of him, and he then stops his run. So as Trinidad overcommit to try to get back into position, he's now standing on top of the six-yard box. And I think another forward, or maybe Jesus Ferreira a year ago, Although that might be a bad example because he didn't have the strongest year, but I guess you get my point that he probably stands at the top of the 18, holds that run, maybe just to the back post with the hand in the air. And I think just it reminds me of like a thing Luis Suarez would do of recognizing what's about to happen and why if I move into an offside position without moving, I will pretty quickly move into an onside position and I will like gain goal side positioning and sort of throw everything off. And that's exactly what happens. And so his awareness, but then patience to stop and then the calmness of the finish. I really, really liked his assist for the first goal where he doesn't just sort of blindly hack at it because he thinks the goal might be open, but to take his time, center it and set up a very quick and efficient opening goal. I thought his decision making with those runs and when he made them and what he did with them, all of it made me very happy. Smart movement, smart runs, good composure, and, and good speed. He looked faster in this game than I expected, yeah. which I assume is partly a byproduct of the opponent. But also, you know, that's a good thing to note and a good thing to see. All of this makes me makes me wish that we would see Jesus Ferreira playing as a number nine, basically a false nine, but maybe even just a flex nine, if if you want to mm. use that terminology. Flex nine. What is a flex nine? Well, I'm just I'm just trying to make up terms on the fly. Like it's I think of it as a number nine who can drop in, but is also attacking the box and also has the responsibility to make those runs that you're talking about, Taylor, and move in the box like you just described. And so Flex kind of can alternate between stepping high and being the the traditional number nine and also coming back into midfield. But It, we, if we, uh, set my terminology aside, which is probably on me for using that in the first place on the fly, but no, I like it. I like it. It makes, it makes me wish that we would see him play this role for FC Dallas. Mm-hmm. Luchi Gonzalez's yeah. system with Dallas is not entirely dissimilar to how Greg Barhalter's national team plays. There are a lot of, of at least overlaps between the two offensive styles. And instead, we've been seeing a lot of Jesus Ferreira as an attacking midfielder playing underneath a Ricardo Pepe or underneath a Franco Hara. And I think maybe this could be the year that we see more of Jesus Ferreira as a nine for Dallas. But if it's not, I wish it was. Yeah, I, I hope it is as well. And I hope he continues to develop some of those runs, some of that positional awareness, because I think it's already good. It can obviously get better. But I think to his to the point about uh, his speed that you made, that he looked faster than you maybe thought he would, I agree with you, but I also thought he stood out to me because it wasn't just him sprinting from this position to that position and that space into the, like it there's there's something where like there's a difference between hard work and like I want to you know make sure I'm open I want to keep keep running I always always want to be moving and supporting my teammates that's like good hard work and then there's sort of just running around not really being sure but hard work hard running is the key to success and it's not really and I thought that with Ferreira in this game there were moments when he was making those darting runs in behind trying to get on the end of like a, a direct over ball but there were other times when he was sort of slowly helping build and this is kind of like a nuanced way to the tr- thing to try to explain but there were also moments when he like like I never understood in warm-ups when the coach would say like all right now you're at 50 percent speed now you're at 100 percent speed now you're at 75 I was like is that like how do you how are we gauging this and <laughs> Jesus Ferreira I think knows how to gauge his percentages yeah. because yeah. there were also moments when I could tell he was trying to get away from a defender but he didn't want to sort of 
like burst into space too quickly. And he did a really good job of just regulating that speed at times when it was appropriate. And that's, again, a, a minor thing. But in the context of of the opponent that I think he was sort of like really working on all aspects of his game. And I think a lot of it showed in a positive way makes me feel very positive. So I think we've talked a lot about Jesus Ferrer and the positivity there. Uh, Joe, whom else would you like to discuss when it comes to positive things on the field? Let's talk about Sam Vines, shall we? He started like off hot with that really nice bending through ball into right in and around the box for uh, Jesus Ferreira to run onto. And then that leads to the Jonathan Lewis goal that, that starts this game in the second minute. He, he's been making, Sam Vines has been making that pass for Colorado and even for the national team for the last year. And it adds to his game as, I think the roots of his game is, is as a solid defensive player. He's a, a more of a defensive minded fullback traditionally, but I think we're seeing Sam Vines evolve and this game was a good example of it in terms of his ability to step high a little bit, to move into the attack or certainly to play balls into the attack for his attacking teammates to run onto. And I think this, this pass in the second minute is a great example of that. And it, it's a good illustration of how he can impact a game on both sides of the ball. Yeah. And that would be the, like the similar thing that we saw George Bellow, not, <laughs> who did I say? Not Chris, Chris Gloucester. Yeah. Do later on in the game. But yeah, that, that sort of pass, that's that sort of pattern, that sequence that, like seeing him pull off time and time again made me happy because it was clear that he was looking for it because they had worked on it. And so the other runners were making those runs and it was sort of a, like he was looking for it because it was on, but also he was looking for it because he could play inch perfect passes yeah. that then led to goals and sort of broke the lines and caused mass confusion. He is the player that I think stood out to me the most in a positive way in this game. I said Jesus Ferreira was number two. Sam Vines is number one. Is there a reason for that beyond his passing or were you just really in love with how Sam Vines moved the ball? Cause those are either way you answer this question. I totally understand. Mm-hmm. I think it's that like, like we've had lots of question marks about who starts at left back for us going forward. Is it Sergio Des playing on the left side? Do we go with Anthony Robinson and see what happens? Are we still going to go with like another center back who tucks in? We have questions about that left back spot. I think we have a lot of questions about the number nine spot, about who kind of fits with what Berhalter wants the most. Is it still Josie Alcador? Is it Jesse Zardes? Has Josh Sargent developed enough to do the things Berhalter wants. Is Matthew Hoppy going to get a look? And I kind of forgot about Jesus Ferrer, despite how good he looked the last time we saw him play for the national team. And so I think that two players performed, in my opinion, exceptionally well in areas of vulnerability. I think that is part of it. It's just like anytime you make me feel a little bit more like, okay, that's not as big of an issue. Again, grain of salt. The opposition was what it was. But Sam Vines, yeah, I think his passing ability was a big part of it. But it was also, as I said, that for how advanced he was on regular occasions when it was time for the United States to defend, there were moments when I would see them like lose the ball on the right-hand side, like maybe near like uh, Trinidad's corner flag. And so then everybody has to transition back. And within five seconds, that back four was a unified unit, like 15 yards behind midfield. And that Vines and Herrera both did such a good job of getting back and and staying positionally sound defensively, but then immediately getting into the attack. And you could see the patterns there as well, that when the ball would go into on the right hand side, for example, let's say Robinson has the ball or Ewell has the ball. And Acosta is in that sort of advanced, but a little bit tucked in. He's not fully gone central, but, uh, or uh, Acosta or even Ariola. If it's Ariola on the right hand side, right wing, when he's sort of moved in and he's maybe 15 yards from the, the sideline, when that ball goes into his feet, Herrera was already at full speed getting down the right hand side and Sam Vines the same. And, and those sort of 
patterns that you could spot really quickly and know, okay, that ball is going into his feet. He's making an overlap so that that overlap is on. He could also drop it. He could also turn. I think you just started to see options opening up all over the field. And that's like the definition of what you want when you're trying to build an attacking system is one pass opens up opportunities, which opens up more opportunities, which opens up more opportunities, ideally opens up a goal. And it just seemed like a lot of what Sam Vines was doing kept leading to very good attacking chances. Jason Kreiss, who was on the bench for this game, he's the U.S. U23 head coach. He'll be leading them through Olympic qualifying and then hopefully in the Olympics if, if that actually happens. Jason Kreiss has got to be happy, Taylor, with your top two players from this game. With Jesus Ferreira <laughs> yeah. as a number nine, he's Olympic eligible. Sam Vines as well, Olympic eligible as a left back. I think those two players, or, or certainly Sam Vines, are going to feature very heavily for that U23 squad. And, and Sam Vines provides even an option for the senior team at left back throughout 2021, where there's going to be so many different competitions, Nations League, Gold Cup, World Cup qualifying, you're going to need multiple left back options. Serginho Dest and Anthony Robinson are probably not going to cut it for all the games the national team is going to be playing. Sam Vines, I think, through his couple of appearances in 2020 and now starting off 2021, he has continued to to darken his name in pencil in that depth chart yeah. on that left back spot. I mean, I it this performance was was so good in my opinion that like I hope we see him in the next round of friendlies, even if it is a sort of ideally like a, a mixed MLS European squad. It might just be like European teams if we get friendlies at all. But I really hope that we do get to see Sam Vines against sterner opposition, and then we can see if this was a like yeah he looks very good against USL League One opponents. But against like a, a a sterner contest, does he or a stiffer contest? Does he continue to cover himself in glory? I think like that's where I want to go with Sam Vines. Is if if he's called into the next squad, I will be very happy. And if he's not, I will be sort of sad. And that's not a thing I would have expected uh, when the rosters were first named for this game. I think we just need to have Sam Vines and Anthony Robinson compete against each other in some sort of I don't know skills challenge, some <laughs> sort of competition. <laughs> And and whoever wins that, maybe it's a game of checkers. I don't know. Maybe it's chess. Adam and I talked about that on a recent episode. Some sort of head head to head competition. Whoever wins that is the starting left back from now into eternity. <laughs> That's the perfect way to do it. <laughs> uh, we're gonna talk more about. Uh... This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
players who had a very good evening. But first, we're going to talk about sponsors. This episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Policy Genius. We are entering February. February is the shortest month of the year, meaning you've got slightly less time to check off your monthly to-dos. Uh, if, poli- if getting life insurance is one of those to-do things, then Policy Genius can help you get that taken care of very quickly. But it can also do the same for, say, home and auto insurance. Uh, you can save up to $1,000 a year by reshopping for home and auto insurance rates with Policy Genius. Here's how it works, and it, it sounds great, so I'm going to explain how to actually do this first. You head to policygenius.com and answer a few quick questions about yourself and your property. Then Policy Genius takes it from there. They'll compare rates from over 30 top insurers, from Progressive to Nationwide, to find your lowest quotes. Then the Policy Genius team will look at all the ways to maximize your savings, including bundling your home and auto policies. If Policy Genius finds a better rate than what you're paying now, they'll switch you over for free. That kind of service has earned Policy Genius a five-star rating across over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. That's a lot of reviews, Joe. It's a lot of reviews, Taylor. Some would say that's 1,600 reviews, in fact. <laughs> I wouldn't, but some would. If you're worried... If you're worried that March is around the corner and you've barely gotten anything done, take a deep breath. Policy Genius will help you make the most of this short month in minutes. Wow. That's a minutes, months and minutes. Just reshop your home and auto insurance and you could save, as I said, up to around $1,000. Uh, head to policygenius.com and get started right now. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. Thank you to Policy Genius for sponsoring this episode. Thank you to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode of the Total Soccer Show. And I'm gonna, I'm not gonna lie, Joe. And for making my breakfast all the more wonderful because we have the variety pack. I have been eating Magic Spoon. Pretty consistently every single, I'm not going to say every single morning, but almost every morning for the last like two weeks, I've been eating Magic Spoon and I have not been regretting it. Tell us all of the joys of Magic Spoon, Taylor. Tell us right from your lips to our ears. So first of all, like I feel like with most breakfasts that aren't Magic Spoon, and maybe this is a sign that I need to change my dietary habits, but I feel like (laughs) breakfast stuff is like you're making toast, you're making eggs, maybe you're making like a smoothie or something like that, or eating some fruit. It just requires a lot of time. It requires effort to to cook the eggs. You want to toast the bread. Maybe you're making bacon in there too. Suddenly you're like using a lot of different pots, your different temperatures. You got to make sure it all comes out at the same time because you can't have like bacon needing 10 more minutes, but the eggs are done. Cold eggs are disgusting. We all know this, Joe. So true. But Magic Spoon. It's just delicious cereal that you pour into a bowl and then you add milk and then you eat your breakfast and then you wash the bowl out and you're done, Joe. There's not a whole kitchen to clean. Uh, and you don't have the guilt of eating a bunch of cereal because Magic Spoon has zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, only three net uh, grams of carbs in each serving. Uh, if you double up as I do, then that goes to six carbs. But that's still way lower than the like giant bowl of Fruit Loops and what that does to your body. No dishes, no guilt, man. This is uh-huh. this sounds too good to be true, but it's not. It tastes amazing. I'm kind of confused. And it's and it's good for you. It's keto friendly, gluten free, grain free, soy free, low carb, and GMO free. But it is not, and I repeat, not taste free. As Taylor has made very Dude, clear, it is this not. is the good. This is the good stuff, folks. Like I, it, it, I think I've said this before. I will say it again. It reminds me of the old Seinfeld episode when they're all eating frozen yogurt that they've been told is fat free. And then they do the testing and discover that it is not fat free, which is why hmm. it's so delicious. Like <laughs> I do find myself occasionally the fruity ones, especially because again, I, I do love, uh, fruit loops, uh, both as a child and now I was one of those kids who wasn't allowed the fruity cereals. So then uh, like, yes. you grow up. That's all you want. Uh, and, and every time, like I do the first time I take a bite, I'm like, I, 
I feel like I'm being tricked here. I feel like there's something I'm not being told, and it's actually, I don't know. It's it's made of some like some like it's made of squirrels, Joe. That's what it is. So, like I keep expecting it to be something nefarious and evil, but it's not. It's just delicious and not loaded with sugar. It has all of those those positives and none of those negatives, and that's why Magic Spoon is wonderful. So listeners, go to magicspoon.com slash TSS to grab a variety pack and try Magic Spoon today. And be sure to use our promo code TSS at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. So that's magicspoon.com slash TSS and use code TSS to save $5 right now. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring this podcast. We certainly do. All right, Joe, I've talked about my my one and two uh, players who came out of this one in the best standing. Let's talk about the number one when it comes to soccer Twitter. Uh, let's talk <laughs> about Matt Turner, shall we? Oh, let's do. And I love how you introed that because Matt Turner truly is the analytics darling of soccer Twitter and just the darling of American soccer Twitter in general. I think so. I think we have had this conversation in various forms on a couple different episodes, but I would like to just sort of pause for a moment, Joe, because I feel like you're tapped into the into these things. You're a youngster, whereas I'm an old person. Uh, like, what is it that people love so much about Matt Turner? Why was it the entire internet melting down about how he's the greatest goalkeeper of all time, especially when he makes the penalty save? So, in addition to loving his scruff and loving that close up that we got for minutes in the first half of Matt Turner, mm-hmm. as we heard, is really. Really awesome, compelling story. I'm not being sarcastic there. He has an awesome story that John Strong detailed on the broadcast. But Richmond even if we set, what? Mm-hmm. yeah, Richmond Kicker, stand up. Even if we set that aside, Matt Turner's stats are what makes everybody so excited about him. His shot stopping numbers are or have been some of the best in Major League Soccer for the last three seasons. Of the six best shot stopping seasons in MLS since 2018. Three of those are Matt Turner. 2018 Matt Turner, 2019 Matt Turner, 2020 Matt Turner. His numbers and his ability to save goals and to stop expected goals. Taylor, if you take a shot that is worth 0.3 expected goals, there's a a 30% chance that it's going to be scored. That's how XG works. Matt Turner, based off of his numbers, has a higher likelihood of saving that shot than the average goalkeeper. A significantly higher likelihood of doing that than your average MLS goalkeeper. And even higher than Zach Steffen during his time in Major League Soccer. So that's why people like Matt Turner. That's why the analytics people out there like Matt Turner. That's why I like him, because statistically speaking, he is the best shot stopper in the American goalkeeper pool, and it's not really all that close. So then I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. So if like this feels like that sort of age old debate of analytics, people say he is statistically the best performing goalkeeper when it comes to stopping shots and and basically decreasing the likelihood of conceding a goal. And I think like people who are just more so like, I just want to watch the game and see what happens. It's it feels like would maybe be a little bit resistant to that. So are there deficiencies in his game that like people might spotlight or is it really just he's really, really solid? He should be starting. I'm going to be honest, I don't know the answer to that question. And it's not because I haven't seen Matt Turner play a good bit. I think I have for the New England Revolution in Major League Soccer. But if if shot stopping is good for Matt Turner, and I think the numbers say it is, and I think even if we take the incredibly small sample size of his one save in this game, we can tell that he has some ability to stop shots. I don't think that's hugely debated. The area then, if we're not looking at shot stopping, that we need to look at is his distribution. That's really important to how the U.S. wants to play, right? They want to build from the back against teams that are pressing them. And they did that in this game. And Matt Turner was a part of that. 
But the pressure from Trinidad and Tobago wasn't consistent enough. It wasn't strong enough. It wasn't high enough consistently throughout this game to cause Matt Turner a lot of problems and give us the chance to really evaluate his foot skills. Yeah. And with the revolution, it's not either because of how Bruce Arena has them playing. They don't build from the back like Baralder's Columbus crew did with Zach Steffen. So we have a bigger sample size of Stefan now with Man City and even before that with, with Dusseldorf, although less so in the Bundesliga, but certainly with the Columbus crew, we know what Zach Steffen does with the ball. A lot of it's good. Some of it isn't so good, but we know where we stand with Zach Steffen's distribution. We simply don't know, or I at least don't know where we stand as far as how Matt Turner is with his feet. So do you feel like this is going to be, uh, an ongoing conversation and an ongoing debate about who should be the number one. Did, did he do anything tonight to make you think like it's closer than I would have thought? Or for you, is it still Zach Steffen's job to lose? For me, it's an argument. It's a real argument. And I would probably want to see them in camp and, and see Matt Turner really pass the ball and do the same drills and progressions that Zach Steffen is doing right alongside him in training if they're able to get in camp together. But, I mean, we see a nice penalty kick save from Matt Turner. As I as I mentioned briefly before, he dives to his right well and saves Alvin Jones' penalty in the second half. It's not a good penalty from Jones, but he gets the job done. Turner is is a good goalkeeper, and he's a guy I want to get more looks at. And I think I think a lot of people, I'll say this to, to close my thoughts on this, I think a lot of people get lost in the fact that Zach Steffen plays for Manchester City. That's awesome. That's great. But... There's another reality where Matt Turner plays for Manchester City, right? And, and then maybe the reality, or maybe the perception is shifted just because of the club Are you play at. Are we talking multiverse because... here, Joe? Is that what we're doing now? We have different realities? <laughs> yeah, I mean, we can if you'd like. Just because <laughs> someone goes to a certain club doesn't mean that they yeah. immediately become a better player. And and that, I think, is an important thing to to have in our minds as we try to evaluate who should be starting in goal for the U.S. I don't know what you're talking about, Joe. Mixed Discrude should be starting for the U.S. men's national team based on that move to Man City. Remember when that happened very briefly? That was <laughs> oh weird, right? Gosh. Yeah, uh, yeah. it proves my point, though, right? It does. Are there any players... We, I don't know how much we've talked about this. Are there any players like in the national team pool that you do have like an irrational loyalty towards or you do feel like this person needs to always be in the squad or always in the starting 11 like like because i wouldn't say like tyler adams is or christian pulisic is like an irrational like i think they should be in there every single time i think that's pretty fair yeah maybe no irrational ones but i have a Mm -hmm. strong love for tim Weah. i think he brings a lot of stuff that's just so fun to watch and also really valuable to this team but I don't think I have any, this player needs to start and it's because I love him so much and not because he's actually good enough. Do you have, do you have one of those guys, Taylor? Not really. I guess it, it like, I have a lot of love for Dwayne Holmes, but his career has gone the way it has. So we'll see what happens there. I think I'm with you on Timothy Weah. And I think to some extent, maybe I have that with Jordan Morris these days. I think just because I was sort of down on him early on, I think partially unfairly for the Germany thing, but also for the, the one footedness early on. And I think I was, I was sort of slow compared to MLS heads, at least to sort of recognize that he had done a lot to develop his, his non-dominant foot. And I think he's come a long way. I think he's one that's still sort of polarized rises and people dismiss a little bit, but I think he's a very good player and I think he's going to do very good things for Swansea. I think he will do very good things for the national team going forward, but I also do think that for both Wea and Morris, there's a little bit of competition uh, and tonight didn't do anything to dissuade me of that sentiment because I thought Jonathan Lewis had a strong game and I thought Paul Ariola 
uh, had a very good game, both in terms of what he did from an attacking standpoint, the little defensive work he did have to do, I thought he did fine, but also he felt like a veteran player. He felt like a leader in this game. There were moments when I think things could have escalated, and I think early in the first half, I think he has one where he feels like he gets shoved in the back and it's not called. And No, excuse me, that was second half, because then Trimingham goes down for the second time, and that's when he has some words with the ref. But even then, I think like in years past, I, I think he blows up a little bit more. I think he's more angry, and I think it maybe has a little bit more of an effect on his gameplay. In this, in this one, I didn't see a lot of retaliation from the U.S. I think Aaron Herrera had one maybe tabletop challenge after he got taken out. But I thought Paul Ariola kept his cool, really focused on what he needed to do and scored goals and helped create goals, and I thought had a, had a really strong performance Again, like it's, it's, I don't think anybody really hurt their stock from this one, but I thought Ariola did, uh, like he, again, he gave me more to think about than I would have expected previously. We're going to see a lot of Paul Ariola in 2021. That's my yeah, prediction. Maybe that's my biggest prediction after this game. I feel more confident that we're going to see him than I do us uh, seeing Jesus Ferreira or even Sam Vines. Paul Ariola was yeah. the most capped player coming into this game that was in the game day roster at least and he he scored twice he showed why he has been brought in over and over again why he showed why there's rumors and reports about him potentially going to Swansea City yeah, on deadline yeah, day I mean yeah. there's all these different layers to Paul Ariola. he's an experienced guy he's coming off of an injury still just coming back a couple of months ago and he's he brings defensive grit he brings defensive intensity and work rate and he also has a solid first touch. He showed that in this game. He's not the most creative guy. He's not the most technical player, but he he is efficient in his movement. He's efficient with his touches, and he certainly was all of those things tonight, and I agree with you, Taylor. He definitely didn't hurt his stock in this game. I think he helped it. Yeah, like, I, I don't want to be discourteous to him, but I think because of the injury, he is one who fell off my radar a little bit, and so when I heard that, like, oh yeah, and he's also linked with Swansea, I was like, sure he is. Same agent who also wants to get his player a move. <laughs> like, it did not feel as logical to me as Jordan Morris did. And then watching this game, I did have those sort of like, oh right, oh right, oh right, of like all of the things Paul Ariola does that will make him exceptionally, exceptionally good in the championship for that Swansea team. That it's, it's a lot of grit and hard work and he doesn't back down from a challenge. But a point you made there, I forgot that he does have that, like, sort of at times, like absurdly good first touch that you don't expect to be the case. And in, in, in previous games, it was like he would drop in to get the ball and then try to go at a defender over and over again and then like once a game it would be a 40 yard diagonal that he would just kill dead with his first touch and it was sort of like what where did, where did that come from you can do that and he had a few of those uh, in this game tonight where it was just like kills the ball dead or that first touch perfectly sets him up for the second touch shot as it does for his goal and just a lot or one of his goals I forget which one it was even but like I just thought yeah that first touch it was just the thing that I had kind of forgotten about that then seeing it again tonight a lot of things clicked as to why Swansea might be interested in him and if he does make that move for Steve Cooper and Swansea City, he can play as the right wing back. He can play as a defensive minded number 10. There are multiple spots in the, the 3-5-2-3-4-1-2 that Swansea are running right now in the championship that I think Areola could be very impactful in. And so that's even another reason why I think they might be interested in him. It's because of his versatility and then the qualities that you, you kind of just detailed for us here. So we've gone like we're 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 getting into the territory of maybe going a little long on a game that finished 7-0. So I don't want to go like we don't necessarily have to go into every single player, but there's a few I'd like to talk about uh fairly quickly unless you have more to say about Paul Ariola. No, please do your thing, Taylor. Uh I would say like I would talk more about uh Aaron Herrera and I thought I thought he was very good again. 
he 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 kept his stock where it was or rose it slightly. I just think that in contrast to Sam Vines, he's playing right back where we already have between four and 13 options. So I think he's a little bit hard done by the talent ahead of him. Uh, but I thought he had a very good game and uh, a better game than I would have expected. So that made me happy. Kellen Acosta was a player that like, I've been confused. There was the thing where he was sent home and it didn't seem like we were ever going to see him again. Uh, so much so that I forgot we did see him in December and you had to remind me of that last time we talked about this roster. And to see him tonight, he was another one similar to Paul Areola, who I, I could just tell was the veteran presence, which is surprising to say about a guy who has not been a veteran player or has not been getting consistent appearances under Berhalter to be that veteran. But his calmness on the ball, his decision-making was was consistently very good, and his defensive work when he knew to drop in and he knew where to go. If Aaron Herrera was committed forward, he knew to kind of stay back on the right-hand side. But sometimes Aaron Long would step out, and I would see Kellen Acosta fill there. I think he finishes the game at right-back. And to me, that says Berhalter worked a lot with him and either wanted to just keep him in for the entire game to show, like, you've earned it, you're playing the whole game, or they had planned out that at some point he was going to drop in and play right back, which means Greg Berhalter trusts him to play right back, albeit when you're up 7-0. But I, I just, I think I was again surprised by how versatile Kellen Acosta was and how like seamlessly he folded into this team. His, his defensive work caught my eye in this game. He tracked back. He won, he won balls. I think he won the ball in the, the attacking half that led to the second goal. I'm, I think I'm even talking about a different play earlier in this game. Ah. I believe he was responsible for winning that ball that then got the, got it to Sebastian Legette, who switched it over to the left side, and the U.S. went to work from there. Acosta was a lot of places in this game, not just because he switched positions, but because he was moving. He was aggressive with his defensive work. I, I also liked what I saw from him. Not I don't think he projects as a starter for the U.S. down the line, but he is certainly in contention for spots 15 to 23 or, or spots, you know, 16 to 23 on this U.S. full strength roster from this point. It was. Yeah. And it was the the third goal is the one that I was talking about where it's a uh, I can't remember if it's a goal kick. I think it's a free kick uh, from like inside the Trinidad 18 taken long and he like power wins that one but it goes straight to the feet of Paul Ariola who like turns plays into Ferreira and then I think that's the the cutback that Ariola then scores that was a great sequence there but even Acosta sort of being dominant in the air but not just winning the ball and sending it 30 yards back down the field but winning it and putting it onto the feet of a teammate same thing Ferreira did uh for for the other Ariola goal <laughs> lots of good headed passes into the feet of Paul Ariola I thought that that awareness was uh was pretty good as well uh who else stood out to you from this game, Joe, in either a positive or maybe slightly negative, because I do have two players who I thought didn't do the greatest job at times. Uh, first thing, we're going to make Power Win a staple on, on TSS from now on. Yes, please. That is just a delicious two-word combo. <laughs> but for me, a player that I'm I'm a little bit confused about, even after okay. the rewatch, and I want to hear your thoughts on him, it's Andres Perea. He filed a one-time switch from Colombia to be able to play in this game. It's his second camp with Greg Berhalter. He's 20 years old and came in and played as a number six, shifting Jackson Yule higher up into midfield. And Perea did some good things, and he looked very promising at times. And other times he looked a little bit lost and a little bit sloppy and overambitious with his passing. And you add those things together. He gives up the penalty that Alvin Jones takes and Matt Turner saves in the second half. You add the good things and the bad things together, and I just get a big fat question mark for Andres Perea. Yeah. 
So this, I, I think this was a game. My take, my take on this one, I feel like this is my only like take I have from <laughs> this game. I think Perea, we saw his youth and inexperience at this level on display. Agreed. Cause I think he comes in at halftime and it's a thing we've talked about a lot on this show that there are times when a, a youngster is making their debut either for club or country and you'll see them be very simple early on when they first come in. They're completing one and two touch passes. They're not overcomplicating things. They're, I think, trying to keep it very simple because they don't want to make mistakes. Then as they get that confidence, as they feel like, oh, I can take another touch. I can dribble into space. I can go for that long ball. You see that confidence develop. And I think we saw that with Perea in those first maybe 10 minutes of the second half that he was on the field. He's kind of roaming around. He was bigger than I than I thought he would be. Uh, even knowing like how big he was seeing him on the field. I was just like, oh, he looks like he could also be a center back. That's exciting. And so I, I found myself sort of watching him as he was playing. There's that one like 30 yard ball that Stu Holden spotlighted that he plays like over the top of the defense into, I think, Sam Vines again. And so he starts picking out those passes. And I think you could see him getting into a groove. And my opinion is that it turns entirely when he concedes that penalty, because to me, that penalty is him being too like comfortable it's in the moment for people who didn't see it it's basically he tries to bring a ball down like over the shoulder by lifting up his foot hits a player in the head penalties conceded i think correctly it's a dangerous play but against stronger opposition i think if he had come in and it was nil nil and he's working really really hard i don't think he tries that i think that was a sort of complacency we're up seven nil i i back myself to bring this one down and he got it wrong and i sort of feel like at that point he started second guessing himself and that was when i saw him get caught in possession a few times i saw him with some errant passes i saw him uh, in contrast to what I was saying with Jesus Ferreira, I saw him charging around a little bit and trying to make a play, especially in the minutes after he concedes the penalty. I felt like I saw him run here and run there and run there and run there. And that's not what Burhalter wants, but it seemed like he was desperate to make up for it. And I think started off very confident, started off very calm and good on the ball. And I think that penalty just rattled his nerves a little bit. And I think it took him a while to recover from that one. So it wasn't a like, bad game, but I think it was a very interesting up and then down game. I'm excited to see more of him. I'm guessing we'll see him for Olympic qualifiers. Uh, but he was one who I was pretty hyped about in those first 10 minutes. And by the end, I think I had him in more so the negative column than anywhere else. You just said, uh, I'm excited to see more of him. And I think that's where I land on Andres Perea. Yeah. I've been thinking the whole time as you're talking, there was good. There were a couple of really nice switches, some when he was under no pressure at all, and that doesn't do too much for me. But others, when he was under a little bit of pressure and showed some good passing range and even ambition, I, I respect the ambition to an extent to go out there on your first game with with the national team and try some things. I don't mind that at all, but it didn't all come off, right? He gets turned that that leads to the penalty. Then a couple minutes later, he fouls uh, in midfield and, and looks a little bit out of his mm -hmm. depth. But again, he's yep. 20 years old. It's his first game with the United States. I don't, I, I just want to be clear where you and I both stand on him, Taylor, is that we're excited to see more of what he can bring. He, he has a really unique skill set. He has that desire to be ambitious with his passing. He showed some ability to have those plays come off. And then he mm -hmm. also showed some good speed. He showed some good counter pressing ability to eat up space defensively. He has a really unique skill set within the context of other number sixes in this pool. And and that's why I want to see more of him, not because he did any one thing really, really great in this game, but because I think he could end up doing a lot of things really, really well 
uh, you know, throughout the season with Orlando City in 2021, hopefully we get a Major League Soccer season. And, and then maybe with the U23s and Olympic qualifying, all of those things, there's much more to come from Andres Perea, even if I don't think this was his best game. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's how I feel about the entire team is that nobody came into this game and left with me thinking like, all right, that's enough of them. Yeah. Like I'm good on them. Cause I thought like really briefly, I thought Aaron Long was excellent. I thought the sort of Aaron Long to Sam Vines pass that was on like once every five or 10 minutes that he would hit almost every single time. I think one time he put it up, but for the most part, it was good sort of chipped passes into space. I thought that distribution was good. I thought Miles Robinson had an excellent game across the board. I thought his passing was good, his positioning solid. Jackson Yule, like we didn't see him have to do a lot of the kind of high intensity number six work that we've seen at other times with the national team. But again, I thought it was just like, yeah, that was fine. Even Daryl DK, who I, I thought was maybe the only other player that had a slightly negative performance. And I know that I'm now incurring the wrath of Twitter for that one as well, because I know lots of people wanted to see him start. But my, I think the reason why I'm slightly down is on DK is just because I wasn't sure how he was going to fit in because I was wondering if, is he going to do the same runs as Ferreira? Is he going to try to be that same player? And I don't think he was. I think he was asked to sort of lead the line, be the target man, uh, maybe have some like knockdown combos with Chris Muller, which he, he did on a couple occasions, but it it didn't fit with the way they were playing, but I also didn't really see them completely adjust their approach to highlight the the kind of skill set he does have, the the major threats he does bring in. It felt like sort of like, yeah, go play up top, but don't drop in, but we're not going to really change things. And I think that's a part of why things slow down a little bit, aside from the fact that they were already up, what, 7-0 inside of the first like 65 minutes or something. <laughs> I got Taylor. I have a question for you here. Mm. Do I have the authority to give listeners homework or no? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Because I've kind of done it before, and, you, and you rolled with it. As long as I'm not, you're not giving me homework. No, no, right? of course not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. So I'm very curious. I want to see sort of a, a spectrum, like a number line, with Jesus Ferreira at one end because he is the epitome of the false nine that we've seen Greg Berhalter mm-hmm. use. Uh, Sebastian Legette would also be in that mold when we see him play as a nine. I don't think we'll, we're ever going to see that again, but that, that type of striker at one end. And then I want to know who the striker on the opposite end of the spectrum is. I think it might be Jossie Zardes, but Daryl DK might also be in contention for k- kind of being the complete opposite. I made the argument pregame on Twitter that I think DK can drop in and play with his back to goal a little bit and provide an extra number in midfield. He did that a couple times in this game in his appearance in the second half, but not a lot. And so we just see Baralter work with different kinds of strikers, different kinds of players. And I'm curious just to see a number line with someone trying to map out where, where Jossie Zard is, where Josie Altador, where Josh Sargent, Joe Akini, Sebastian Soto, where all these different guys go on the, the spectrum. Because, yeah, in one minute we're seeing Jesus Ferreira play and dropping really deep into midfield. The next minute we're seeing Daryl DK play a little bit higher. And I think the system that the U.S. uses is highly dependent on the movement of their number nine. And it is difficult, as you said, Taylor, to map out how they change from one to the other and how the system can change so quickly or how it should change in in moments where they switch personnel. I think, uh, I'm not, uh, maybe I misunderstood, but I would say like Jesus Ferreira is on one side of the spectrum. I would say Jesse Zardes is, is close, closer to that spectrum. I, it sounded like you said he was on the opposite side. I feel like he's a mobile, will drop in and create overloads, isn't necessarily 
overly focused on scoring goals. So that feels similar to me. I would say even though he's retired, Alan Gordon is the opposite (laughs) side of the spectrum. That's my answer to that, Joe. That's our starting point is Alan Gordon. And well, even Taylor, to be honest, I was saying Jossie Zardes on that far side just because he's not, he doesn't have the foot skills to do what Jesus Ferreira does. He doesn't have that quality. But again, this is why I I want the listeners to do the work or maybe I'll go back through Mm -hmm. and watch a bunch of film because I want to see where all these different number nines stand and get a clear idea in my a clear idea in my own head of how these guys play and how they'll affect the players around them. So you know what? Maybe maybe this is my homework now. That's that's a little unfortunate, but I'm here for it. This this could be a very tedious or very interesting <laughs> or maybe both show of going through like the the number nine quote unquote pool of like 10 players and trying to figure out where they are on the spectrum, but not that spectrum, the attacking U.S. men's national team spectrum. Joe, I'm, I'm kind of into this idea. So if listeners don't do it for us, maybe that's a graphic that we can come up with uh, on one show sometime in the future. Yeah, I'm kind of into that not too tonight, in a though. weird way. So I think, yeah, not tonight, but we, we can definitely <laughs> leave that door open. Uh, anything else you would like to talk about tonight? Any other performances we should mention? I don't think there's a lot left for me in this one. I think I agree with your assessments of the individual players. I, I will say I don't think George Bellow was great off the bench. I think he tried passes yeah. that Sam Vines tried and didn't execute them as well, which is fine. He's three years or two years younger than Sam Vines. Baralter clearly views Vines ahead of him in the depth chart. Bellow is another option for the Olympic team, and I think that's okay. Other than that, I just wanted to get that little snippet in there. I don't, I don't really have much else, Taylor. I, I think, uh, nor, nor do I other to say, like we mentioned very briefly, but I thought Jonathan Lewis, again, just had a good game. I, I hope we see more of him going forward. And then I really hope we see more of Sebastian Legette because I do think he allows us to, if we did want to play Pulisic wide instead of that 10 spot, I have less concern. Like I basically every time I see Sebastian Legette, I have less concern about seeing Sebastian Legette. And that's <laughs> not just because he's a very beautiful man, which he is, but it's also because I think he's just constantly calm and competent on the ball. And I think uh, similar to Kellen Acosta brings that sort of I've been here before leadership vibe. Uh, and, and again, even though he's not, you know, a hundred cap national team player, I think he's a very good depth option uh, when we're at full strength. And I think he gives us a lot of options if we're not at full strength, if we need Pulisic to start out wide or we need some cover in the midfield or like maybe we need Pulisic and Reyna out wide and suddenly we're kind of lacking atop- attacking options through the middle. I think he's one who I will always be happy is in the roster. So I think I come away from this game just feeling very, very happy, albeit pretty sad for Trinidad and Tobago. That's a pretty perfect way to sum that up. Trinidad and Tobago, I'm I'm sorry, um, <laughs> but... Overall, a good performance for the United States. We learned some things about how they play and how they're Mm -hmm. continuing to play under Greg Berhalter. And we get another chance to get data on some of these players, a lot of them young players, a lot of them Olympic eligible players. And that's a good thing. It is indeed. It's a good thing, Joe. It's a good time. Um, I think we've talked about this game plenty. Let's do a little uh, housekeeping before we call it a day. Uh, Joe, you have a Soccer 101 episode this week, I do believe. Do you know what the topic will be yet? Um, that's a conversation for you and I after the show, because I have a couple options right. and I was hoping to ask you about it. <laughs> <laughs> how, how succinct can you be? Uh, in terms of like actually sharing them right now, because I'm happy to do mm-hmm. that. So I'm interested in, in exploring La Masia and talking about how, how that academy for Barcelona came to be and how it was used and maybe how it's not as important now as it was before. So I'm thinking okay, about strong that. Strong candidate off the, off, out of the gates. Perfect. I'm also thinking about going in depth on a specific team or a specific era of a team. And I've got a few rattling around in my head that I won't share right now, but looking at how a team rose to be dominant for a certain period of time. 
and then maybe a, maybe a player, a legendary player in there as well. Although I know Ryan just did kind of a player centric one a couple of weeks ago, the week before last. So maybe I won't go that option. I, I, I think my vote is for, uh, La Masia. Done. But maybe we could open that up to Twitter and see what people <laughs> say, but I, I like that one uh, a lot for everything you said, for like why it came to be and how it got the reputation it did, but why they're less, uh, inclined to utilize it these days and maybe the ramifications of that decision. So I do like that one, but whatever you choose, Joe, we will then be talking about it live later this week. We're going to do another stereo broadcast. This time it's going to be you and me talking about, uh, our various soccer 101 episodes, but then we're also going to answer some listener questions on that show. We'll also maybe put out some questions to listeners and see what they think. So, for example, who impressed you the most from this game or who's one player you would like to see get a call up for the next camp that hasn't been capped in a while? I like the idea of getting more audience interaction to see what people are thinking aside from Matt Turner is the greatest goalkeeper of all time. Which is which is totally true, right? That's that we're all agreed on. Yeah. I think we've established that pretty clearly. So we've got the two episodes of 101 this week. We've got that live show, then plenty more to come on the Total Soccer Show feed, including another episode of Allocation Disorder, in which hopefully we have positive news about Major League Soccer. We'll see what happens there. And then Ryan, myself, and Graham will be back tomorrow morning. That episode might be out by the time people listen to this one, uh, but we're going to be doing a weekend review slash look back at the January window. Tomorrow is the final day, so maybe then Joe or myself or Ryan or some combination thereof will be back later in the week to sort of do a final grade on the January window. But for now, Joe, any other housekeeping to get to before we call it an evening? You ran through that like a pro housekeeper. I don't have a single thing to add. (laughs) All right, my friend. Then Joe Lowry, thank you for watching the game, re-watching the game, and then talking with me about the United States' emphatic 7-0 win over Trinidad and Tobago. Literally any time, and I mean that. Uh, listeners, I don't mean literally any time we'll talk to you, because that would be <laughs> too much podcasting in your feed. Uh, but listeners, we will talk to you very, very soon. We thank you for listening. Have a good night. 